Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Saturday, January 4th, very early Saturday morning. Uh, There are some NFL games later today. We will talk about them in the next episode of Strong Opinion Sports. Um, Today's all about really college football, a couple other things. I want to start with the Rose Bowl. In the Rose Bowl, Oregon beat Wisconsin 28-27. to And uh, it was a fun watch. I really enjoyed the game. And I'll be very honest. I, I want to start with this because I, I realized watching the Rose Bowl this year, I was like, man, I want to go to a Rose Bowl. I had this moment. I was sitting there watching, and I was like, it's now the 2020s. We have 10 years of this decade ahead of us. And I was like, I'm looking at my dad on the couch. I'm like, dad, we should go to a game at some point. I want to go to Pasadena, California to see a Rose Bowl for myself. Um, the atmosphere is so cool. The sun, like to start the game, the sun kind of peeks through the top of the stadium. And then as the game goes on, the sun sets. And there was this really cool moment in this year's Rose Bowl where, you know, Oregon had these chrome helmets on where they were really reflective. And the sky was turning pink and purple as the sun set. So you had Oregon's helmets looked like pink and purple as the sun, the, the sky reflected off of them. It was so cool and so pretty. And I love the atmosphere. I was like, man, I got to get myself to a Rose Bowl game at some point in the next 10 years. It just looks really, really cool and really, really fun. Um, I want to start by talking about Oregon because I think Oregon, the Oregon Ducks are so, so lucky with the way that their season ended. You know, I I think a lot of people, I look at Oklahoma and how their year ended. Oklahoma got into the college football playoff. They were the number four seed. I don't think they really belonged with the rest. And Oklahoma got annihilated by LSU in their college football playoff game. Oregon is so lucky they didn't make it into a game like that. You know, Oregon got to go to the Rose Bowl. And I want to ask you, 30 years from now, when an Oregon Ducks player currently looks back, you know, a current Oregon Ducks player 30 years from now looks back on his career, what memory would he rather have? Are you going to look back and go, yeah, remember that time we lost to LSU in the college football playoff? No, that's a painful memory. No, instead, Oregon is, is lucky enough to have the memory of winning the Rose Bowl. That's going to be a really fun memory. They have for, they're going to get a ring. They're going to have all kinds of... It's just going to be a fun time they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. And I think Oregon has to appreciate how fortunate they are that winning the Pac-12 got them into the Rose Bowl rather than the college football playoff. They would have got killed by LSU. It wouldn't have been fun. And I think Oregon needs to look at it that way. Like, man, it really worked out for the best for the Pac-12 and for the Oregon Ducks. Um, I want to mention that I just feel so odd about Justin Herbert, the Oregon Ducks quarterback. I can't place it. Um, You know, he forces throws into coverage too often for me. Uh, there was a play against the Wisconsin Badgers where it was third and two. It was like on the 40 or 30 yard line going in and he took a gigantic sack and lost like eight yards and it cost his team an opportunity to go for it on fourth and two. It's little things like that where Justin Herbert is oddly, he's oddly inconsistent where I just go, I have a hard time embracing Justin Herbert as a quarterback. I just physically, he's great. He had this incredible back shoulder fade early in the game. I'm like, man, that's phenomenal. Or he had... You had three rushing touchdowns in the Rose Bowl. Justin Herbert physically has all the tools, but something, I, I can't quite place it. It's holding me back. Now, I got to acknowledge that um, I love Justin Herbert's story. And I'm excited someday to dive into the film, really, from Justin Herbert and figure out, like, what, where does this apprehension come from with Justin Herbert? But I got to say, his, his story is incredible. He's a kid from Eugene, Oregon, which is where the University of Oregon is actually located. And his freshman year at Oregon in 2016... The Ducks went 4-8, and eight, had an, you know, a bad, miserable year. Four years later, as a senior in 2019, they went 12-2. and two. They won the Pac-12 championship. They won the Rose Bowl. 
it's so cool to me, like the turnaround Oregon's gone through and the the progression of Justin Herbert over the years. It, it's just a cool story to me. I like the hometown kid turns around the Ducks like that's awesome. Turns around, maybe brings him back to glory is a better way to put it. Um, but I've, I've been questioning for a long time whether or not Justin Herbert loves football. And uh, I got to acknowledge, man, that's a hard opinion to hold after watching him cry at the end of the Rose Bowl game. He's like, he's in this post-game interview, clearly emotional, clearly it meant a lot to him. It's hard to criticize, you know, and wonder whether or not he loves football after watching that interview. Uh, so maybe I'm wrong. I heard a really interesting comparison. It was actually from a, it was from a YouTube commenter. A guy commented that maybe Justin Herbert's personality is more like Kawhi Leonard. I still find that apprehensive. Maybe he's more quiet and more pensive and more subtle. I, I don't know that I like that from a quarterback. I like quarterbacks to be more, more confrontational, more galvanizing. I don't know that Justin Herbert is that kind of guy, but hey, I am very willing to be more than wrong about Justin Herbert and his personality. I just have questions about it. I think it's okay to ask questions and say, we'll see more in a couple of years. I could be very wrong. I have no problem being wrong and sharing my speculation about Justin Herbert and saying, hey, this is speculation. It could be wrong. I think a lot of people misinterpret that as me rooting against him. I have nothing against Justin Herbert. I just have, I know something feels off and I cannot place it. I cannot figure out what it is, but something about Justin Herbert makes me kind of more cautious than I normally am with other quarterbacks. Like Tua, Joe Burrow, I'm so confident. For some reason with Justin Herbert, I'm like, eh, we'll see. Now the star of the game to me actually was, you know, Justin Herbert had three touchdowns, but Brady Breeze, the junior safety for Oregon, I don't know if he's going to go to the NFL or not. The dude had an incredible year. It was an incredible game, excuse me. He had 11 total tackles. He had two fumble recoveries. He had a touchdown on a fumble recovery. Brady Breeze was flying all over the field. It's so cool to me. Um, I don't care about the, his measurables at all. If I'm an NFL team, I look at that performance and go, I want that guy on my team. I don't know when I'll get him. I don't know if he's a starter or not, but his effort and his attitude and the way, like the heart he showed in that game was incredible. And I really, I'm a big fan of Brady Breeze now. That safety for the Oregon Ducks, man, his effort's awesome. Flying all over the place, making plays. Um, if I'm an NFL team, even if he's just a special teams player for me in the future, I want Brady Breeze. I, look, I know nothing about him. I, didn't, I knew nothing about him going into that game, but I was like, Brady Breeze was a star of that Rose Bowl. He was flying all over the place. If I'm an NFL team, I look at that and go, I want that guy on my roster. Now, I really think that Wisconsin hurt themselves in this Rose Bowl. It was really painful to me. Um, they kept throwing, towards the end of the game, especially down the stretch, Wisconsin kept throwing the ball on first and second down. And I was just... My dad and I were sitting there begging them to please run the ball, pound the rock. You have Jonathan Taylor, this incredible running back who for most of the year was a Heisman candidate. And uh, he had 94 yards on 21 carries. If it were me calling plays, I think he would have had around 30 to 35 carries. I think they should have tried to get more out of him and utilized him more. And I, I feel like the word that comes to mind when I think of the way that Wisconsin used Jonathan Taylor in that game was he was underutilized. He didn't get used as much as I would have. I would have kept running on first down, second down, pounding the rock. They were getting five, felt like they were getting five yards every carry. And for some reason, Wisconsin kept trying to throw the ball. I really think it cost them down the stretch moving the football. I also got to say Jack Cohn, the quarterback for Wisconsin. Um, it's so interesting to me because he's very close to being great. You know, two years ago in 2018, we saw... Joe Burrow, the guy, the LSU quarterback, he took a gigantic leap forward from 2018 to 2019. He won the Heisman Trophy this year, but last year, 
he was not the same quarterback. He was his arm strength wasn't as good, his accuracy, his timing, his all the the little things that make him a great quarterback now were not present in 2018. And I think Jack Cohn is a guy that with a little better mechanics could have a stronger arm, with a little better footwork could be more accurate. And because the decision making is there from Jack Cohn, the Wisconsin quarterback, I really hope he does improve because if he does, those little changes he can make to his mechanics, the little changes he can make to footwork will go a tremendous long way for him and elevate Jack Cohn to a much better quarterback. Small, subtle changes would make him a way better player. And uh, I hope we see that. I don't know that he will, but if he gets good coaching and puts in the work, Jack Cohn, the Wisconsin quarterback, could really elevate his play in the future. I don't know that he will because it's rare to see a guy get that much better the way Joe Burrow did. He's kind of an enigma. But I, I really do believe that there's a really good foundation there for Jack Cohn. And if everyone, like, I, we, please, I'm begging Jack Cohn to get better because he's so close to being a great elite quarterback. He's a good college quarterback that if he makes subtle improvements could become potentially an NFL quarterback with better arm strength and better mechanics. Now, regardless, my big takeaway from the Rose Bowl is that I'm just happy for Oregon. I'm happy for their fans. I'm happy for Justin Herbert. And I'm happy for Mario Cristobal the Oregon Ducks head coach. I really like him. I'm a big fan of his, and I love the way he carries himself. I love the way he recruits, but, man, I'm, I'm happy for the Ducks. They won the Rose Bowl 28-27, and uh, good for them. Now, um, Alabama beat Michigan 35-16 to in the, what is it called, the Citrus Bowl, I guess? Whatever bowl game Alabama and Michigan played each other in. Um, now, if you look at the final score, 35-16, to that sounds like a blowout. And the reality is that this game was a lot better and a lot closer than the final score would indicate. You know, many people were mad at Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh. He's awful. He's terrible. He can't win a bowl game. Um, you got to understand, this was not Jim Harbaugh's fault. In fact, Michigan was very much in this game. He called a good football game. You know, Michigan was leading at halftime 16-14. to 14. Jim Harbaugh was not the problem. The problem for Michigan was their awful quarterback, Shea Patterson. I just... Man, it was a. I was embarrassed watching Shea Patterson, the Michigan quarterback, on. Uh, was it New? I guess it was New Year's morning. It was like this is awful. This is a horrifying, terrible performance. He had so many opportunities downfield. I mean, not one, not two, like five, six, seven, maybe even eight opportunities where guys were open vertically downfield, and he just badly overthrew them. It was a, a constant. If you listen to the game or watch the game at all, you heard that over and over again. Another miss by Shea Patterson deep. Over and over again, he either either he didn't recognize a matchup but didn't pull the trigger, or he simply had a guy open downfield and overthrew him by like five or six, seven, eight, even ten yards. He could not complete passes vertically downfield. Shea Patterson is the reason why <laughs> Michigan lost the game. He blew chunks. He was terrible. He was 17 for 37 passing, had 233 yards. Congratulations, but one touchdown two interceptions, and again, Shea Patterson was horribly inaccurate downfield. He was the problem. Harbaugh called a great game. You can't blame Jim Harbaugh for this loss. His quarterback simply didn't execute, and that's, in the moment, your quarterback isn't good enough. That's hard to prepare for. That's not really a coaching flaw. That's just, oh, uh, your quarterback is bad. That's what happened to Michigan in the, gosh, well, what was it called? It was called the Citrus Bowl. That's what happened to Michigan. That's why Michigan lost to Alabama. Now, Mac Jones... Mac Jones played quarterback for Alabama. You'll notice, by the way, that's not Tua Tungavaloa. Tua Tungavaloa, I think most people know this. He was injured. He didn't play in the game. Um, 
And uh, watching Mac Jones play quarterback for Alabama was not awful. He's a very he's a he really reminds me a lot of that guy, oh, AJ McCarron, the former quarterback for Alabama. He's very good. He can throw the ball well enough when with one-on-one coverage. His first throw of the game was like a gigantic bomb to Jerry Judy for a gigantic touchdown pass. Um, he does some good stuff. I will say that Mac Jones got more comfortable as the game went on. Like he settled in and he's as anticipation grew. His accuracy got a little better on third down later in the game. The more he plays and the more I watch Mac Jones, it seems like he gets better every time I watch him throughout the game and from game to game. It's really, really cool. But I got to say, man, the one thing that really stands out to me when I watch Mac Jones play quarterback for Alabama is it makes it so clear how incredible and how good of a quarterback Tua Tungvaloa is. I think a lot of people don't understand quite how good Tua is. They go, well, Tua plays with the best receivers in college football, or he has great receivers. Those are both accurate statements, absolutely. But Tua doesn't just succeed because he has great receivers. It sure helps him. But Tua is so pinpoint accurate. The difference between Mac Jones and Tua is enormous. I mean, there's Mac Jones makes it clear, oh, Tua's a next-level amount of good for Alabama. Not only is he make, he's a great decision maker, Tua is, but he's so pinpoint accurate. With deep balls downfield against one-on-one coverage, Tua rarely, if at all, misses. He's also phenomenal on third down. His ball location downfield along the sidelines is perfect. And then there's one other unappreciated thing about Tua Tungvaloa is that he has this uncanny ability to, I think very similar, he's like, I don't want to say a poor man's Russell Wilson, that's not quite right, but he has a Russell Wilson-esque quality to you know, buy time to escape plays and to keep plays alive and extend them and throw the ball downfield. Tua is really, really special in that area. And when you watch Mac Jones, it's clear, oh, the things that make Tua great aren't here for Mac Jones. He's just a guy playing quarterback rather than an elite-level NFL quarterback like Tua is. And that is what Tua is. Tua is incredible as a quarterback. I know a lot of people write him off because of, like, very casual fans, I guess, write him off because they don't understand that it's not just that he plays with great talent. He actually is incredibly talented in his own right. Um, and I just want to point out that watching Mac Jones play quarterback for Alabama really makes me appreciate just how good Tua is as a quarterback and how confident I am that he's going to be a successful NFL quarterback, whether it's this year or next year. I don't know. And will he be able to move around the same way he has after his injury? I also don't know. But the things that make Tua great and have made Tua great in college for Alabama are not just the fact that he plays with good players. No, he in his own right is actually just an incredible quarterback who is well-deserving of the hype and the, the high praise he gets and the rankings he gets as an NFL prospect. All right, um, Minnesota. Minnesota beat Auburn in the Outback Bowl 31-24. to And uh, by the way, I am so, so happy for Minnesota. I love their head coach, P.J. Fleck. He's awesome. And... Uh, P.J. Fleck had a really cool line. I think it was at halftime of this game. Maybe it was after the game. I can't remember. But P.J. Fleck said, you know, we want to become a blue blood program at Minnesota. And in order to do that, we're going to have to beat other blue blood programs like Auburn. And that's what they did. In the Outback Bowl, Minnesota really, I mean, the score was a lot closer than the game would indicate. It was a fascinating game. The score was close, but the game really wasn't. You know, 17 of Auburn's 24 points were... Because of big plays. You know, uh, Michigan, Michigan, Minnesota early in the game threw a, an interception that gave Auburn really good field position and led to an easier t- field goal for them. That gave them three points. 
Then later after a Minnesota score, Auburn ran back a kickoff for a touchdown. That's another seven points. And then on a fourth and five play, Auburn quarterback Bo Nix really scrambled, kept the play live, checked the ball vertically downfield in the middle of the field, and they had a long touchdown on kind of a cheap, broken play. That's how, you know, a 37-yard pass, those are, that's how Auburn got 17 of their 24 points. It wasn't like they had long, you know, played out extended drives. No, they kind of had three big plays that led to 17 points. The reality is that other than those big plays, Auburn really struggled to move the ball. Um, Auburn really only had one good drive the entire game. I know that's bizarre and weird, but it's also the truth. In the second drive of the second half, Auburn put together multiple first downs. They, you know, really looked like a functional offense and steadily moved down the field and scored a touchdown. It was like on third and goal. But other than that, outside of that one offensive drive, Auburn really had a hard time moving the football. Now, I do want to say, I want to point out very clearly this one thing. I am so excited. For Auburn fans listening, I am so excited to watch the progress of their young quarterback, Bo Nix. He was a true freshman this year. He really showed that physically he has a lot of talent. Now, he needs to get better at the little stuff. He needs to be more consistent with ball location. He needs to be more accurate in the future. Uh, He needs to have better timing. But if he improves... Bo Nix is going to be a really special quarterback. Right now, the base is there. He's a freshman with a lot of room to grow. And I and I, not only that, not only do I love the, the physical abilities we see from Bo Nix, I like his leadership. I like his poise. I like how he handles crisis. Bo Nix does a lot of good stuff for Auburn. He's a quarterback. If you if you never heard of him or somehow he's not on your radar, radar you got to put him on your radar. Bo Nix is a quarterback to watch in the future uh, coming out of Auburn. He's, he's a freshman. He'll be a sophomore next year. Man, he did a great job. Now, Minnesota, um, Minnesota deserves so much praise for the way they beat Auburn. One of the things that's underappreciated about this game is that Minnesota dealt with a lot of adversity. You know, they had an early interception that they overcame. They had a, they gave up a kickoff for a touchdown that they overcame. Minnesota always found a way to respond in the end. And they made more plays. I mean, late in the game, it was 24-24. And I literally wrote down in my notes, I was like, which team is going to make a big play at the end of this game to seal the deal? It's 24-24. It was 24-24 for kind of a little bit, I mean, for a while, for a couple drives. And then literally as I wrote that down in my notes, bam, in one play, Minnesota had a 73-yard touchdown pass deep down the middle of the field. And uh, they also, not only did they have that play, they had multiple, you know, on fourth and one, they had a couple crazy catches. One really incredible one-handed catch to seal kind of the game. Um, Minnesota made more plays than Auburn. They deserved to win this game. It's a really cool statement win for the University of Minnesota. Beating an SEC team down in Florida. Um, you know, they ran for it. Minnesota ran the ball for 215 yards against an SEC defensive line with multiple NFL players that were fighting hard. I mean, the, the scheme for Minnesota was so smart. They avoided one of their key players. They double-teamed Derrick Brown, a really good defensive lineman for Auburn all the time. And uh, even, they even triple-teamed him at times. Minnesota's plan was really, really good. They executed well, and uh, Minnesota beat Auburn fair and square. It was really cool. I was really happy for them, and uh, just a, a fun time, man. I think another, you know, we, Minnesota almost made it into the Rose Bowl by, you know, going to the Big Ten Championship game, losing to Ohio State, then playing Oregon. And I think the reality is that things couldn't have gotten better at the end of the year for Minnesota. Beating Auburn in Florida in the Outback Bowl, that's an awesome way to end the year for Minnesota. And uh, I am so... So happy for them. I'm happy for their coach, P.J. Fleck. And I'm curious to see what Minnesota does moving forward as a football program.
Here's an interesting storyline I think you should follow if you, especially if you like Michigan fo- or Minnesota football. This is an interesting storyline that I'm looking forward to following next year and then the years to come in college football. Uh, Minnesota's offensive coordinator, the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers offensive coordinator, Kirk Sharaka, left. He decided to go take the same position, the offensive coordinator job, at Penn State instead of Minnesota. Now, a lot of people look at this as a, a step up to go from Minnesota to a bigger, you know, traditional powerhouse program, Penn State. And I just look at this as a really interesting storyline to follow because something feels, to me, it feels like Minnesota is really building something in, in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. You know, they went 11-2. and two, They just won the Outback Bowl. And because Kirk Soraka, the offensive coordinator, left, it tells me that maybe he didn't believe in what Minnesota was selling. Maybe he didn't believe that they really are building something, which is bizarre to me because Kirk Soraka has been with P.J. Fleck, the head coach at Minnesota, for a long time. He went to him. He went with him to you know, Western Michigan. Then he went from Western Michigan to Minnesota with him. They've been together for a while. And so I am curious to see where Kirk Shiraka is in two years from now. And where is Penn State compared to Minnesota in two years? Which team is in a better spot two years from now, Penn State or Minnesota? My money, if someone had, you know, made me bet on one of the teams, I probably would put my money on Penn State because historically they're a really good college football program. But is this like a canary in the coal mine for Minnesota? Is there something awry? Is there something just maybe it seems like Kirk Sraka viewed Minnesota's success this year as kind of a flash in the pan and maybe like a one-off rather than a long, sustainable thing they can have for a while. And maybe he just said, look, the job at Penn State is a crazy dream job. Everybody wants a job like that. I have no idea. But I'm curious to see what happens in the next couple of years to Minnesota football. And does Kirk Sraka stick around at Penn State? Does he try to become a head coach? Because I don't think Kirk Sraka would succeed as a head coach. His presence is not there. I've listened to, him, listened to him in interviews. That's not a guy that could recruit me to get to come to play for him. You know, PJ Fleck is incredibly well-spoken. Kirk Sherrock is not. He's just kind of a football mastermind genius guy. And so I think just a fun storyline to follow moving forward is what happens to Penn State and Kirk Sherrock in the next two years, and will it prove to be a, a mistake or the right move to leave Minnesota football? All right. Um, let's talk about the Gator Bowl. <laughs> Tennessee beat Indiana 23-22 to in the Gator Bowl. And uh, it was a, I don't know, I want to say it was a wild game, but wild is not really the right way to put it because, you know, the end of the game was wild. How about that? The last, you know, eight minutes of the game were really wild, but honestly, the first three quarters of the game were very boring. It was like 9-6 to at halftime. You know, Tennessee and Indiana are both, I think, highly flawed football teams of, Really, I mean, like, I, I have a lot of, we have a lot to say about this game. Uh, first of all, Indiana has this quarterback named Peyton Ramsey, named after Peyton Manning. And uh, he's such a scrappy quarterback. He doesn't have a great arm. He plays really ugly. But I respect the way that Peyton Ramsey plays quarterback. He fights so hard and he's crafty. Like, I just think the way he runs the ball and the way he's able to scramble and extend plays, um, it, it's, you know, because of, because of his mechanics, Peyton Ramsey has a weaker arm. He doesn't separate the ball very well. He kind of pushes the ball away. He doesn't use his core or his legs to generate force. But his ability to run around and escape the pocket and keep plays alive is a big reason why Indiana was able to put a lot of points on the board, 22 points, in fact, against Tennessee. And against a team that physically was really, they were outmatched against Tennessee's defensive line. The guy was running for his life, Peyton Ramsey was, and he still found a way to put points on the board. It was really, really cool. But here's the crazy part of the game. I talked about how the last eight minutes, I guess really seven minutes, seven minutes and seven seconds 
were incredible for this game. Indiana led 22 to 9 with 7 minutes and 6 seconds left in the game. And then Tennessee had this crazy sequence where they scored 14 points in 30 seconds, took the lead and never looked back. Um, you know, for a long time in this game, Tennessee struggled to throw the ball. They were all over the place. They even took their quarterback out of the game at one point. But finally, you know, and this one moment with seven minutes left, they went on a stretch. They completed a bunch of passes in a row, put together a good drive. They scored a touchdown to make it 22-16. to 16. Then they got the onside kick, and in two more plays, they led 23-22. to 22. My biggest takeaway from this game is, number one, I'm so happy for Tennessee. This comeback was wild and crazy and fun, and it was like a party because it felt like it was a home game for Tennessee. Their entire fan base seemed to be there in Jacksonville, Florida at this game, and Man, it was so loud. Whenever Indiana had needed a big play, like third and 10 or third and whatever, it got really loud because there were so many Tennessee fans there. But my biggest takeaway from this game is that the way that Tennessee handles quarterbacks is terrible. It's, it's just awful. And I don't know if this is because they have a defensive-minded head coach, Jeremy Pruitt, who is a, really a defensive coordinator at heart. Uh, and I'm not sure who to blame. I don't know if it's the offensive coordinator's fault or if it's the quarterback coach's fault. But the way that Tennessee handles their quarterbacks is so, so problematic. It's not good. It doesn't instill confidence in quarterbacks. And I know this. I know that injuries are not. Tennessee's played four different quarterbacks at times this year. And Jarrett uh, uh, Garantano, Garantano? I can't. I frig, I'm so sorry. I, it's funny. Like, I, until this moment, have not ever had a hard time saying his name, but I think I'm like kind of st- have some stage fright. Uh, Garant- Garantano is he's the quarterback for Tennessee. I'm so sorry. I'm butchering his name. I'm, I apologize. I know his name. I just I've never said it out loud before. Um, he's their most established quarterback, though, and he has this huge arm, but he has awful timing. Like his timing is so bad. He's so consistently late throwing a football, and it, to me, it feels like. Jarrett, you know, will look at a receiver. He he won't quite trust it. He always hesitates. Then he throws the ball late. His timing is terrible. He has bad footwork, which makes him more inaccurate. Uh, and he's got this really big arm. Like, arm strength is there. The talent is there. But I don't think that the coaching staff at Tennessee is really instilling a lot of confidence in this quarterback. You know, the way that they handle quarterbacks is so bizarre to me. Um, at one point, the guy threw two interceptions. He had a pick six. And they benched him. They took him out of the game. Their established starting quarterback. And they put in a freshman, Brian Maurer. And Maurer led them down the field, had a, a long field goal drive. And then suddenly out of nowhere, they put Garantano back in the game. And uh, it just, there was a lot of weirdness to this whole thing. It was very like, expectations are clearly not well defined for Tennessee's offense. I don't think quarterbacks really understand what's expected of them very well. They all look, literally, their faces all look terrified when they look at the sideline as if they're afraid they're going to get pulled or benched or yelled at or something. Um, I think that the quarterback coaching and the way of handling quarterbacks is really, really terrible in Tennessee. There's something off. It's not quite right the way they handle the situations and handle the quarterbacks. They're clearly not well coached because they all have terrible timing. They make bad decisions. The guy, the coach helping them, needs to be fired. He needs to do better because the guy they have isn't working. Um, and there are rumors that Garantano is going to transfer. I hope he does. I really hope he gets better coaching. He needs help because the talent is there. But he needs a coach who can sharpen up his skill set and give him clearer expectations because what's happening in Tennessee right now is not good enough. Tennessee needs a better 
again, whether it's the offensive coordinator or the quarterback coach, whoever handles and manages the quarterbacks in Tennessee is doing a horrible, horrible job. Um, I've kind of watched that situation from afar. I, this is the first time I've watched an entire Tennessee game. I've watched parts of them. But every time I watch Tennessee football, their quarterbacks are bad. And this situation in particular, the way they've handled quarterbacks is like, these guys all look terrified for their lives. And it's clear to me there's some kind of unhealthy discomfort with the way that Tennessee handles and relates to their quarterbacks. All right. Um, I want to talk about the Washington Redskins. The wa- mm. The Washington Redskins are doing a lot of the right things, right? They hired a new head coach. They got Ron Rivera. They hired Jack Del Rio as their defensive coordinator. The Redskins have the number two overall pick. They're probably going to be able to get Chase Young, the great defensive end out of Ohio State. And it feels like the Redskins have this huge opportunity ahead of them. They just fired their their team president, Bruce Allen. And so I want to be very, very clear. Please understand this. I am rooting for the Redskins. I hope that good things happen in Washington. I like their quarterback, Dwayne Haskins. I like Ron Rivera. He seems like a good man. I hope that they turn into an incredibly successful franchise. And I also got to acknowledge that all the pieces are there for that to happen. Like, from a decision, like, I don't think the Redskins could do any better, actually, like with what they have. They have a good a young quarterback. They have a head, you know, head coach, defensive coordinator, going to get a good draft pick. Like, all the pieces are there for the Redskins to be successful. However, I got to ask you a question. I got to ask you, is Daniel Snyder still the owner of the Washington Redskins? He is. Daniel Snyder is still the owner of the Washington Redskins. They have a good coach now. Woo, that's awesome. And they have a good quarterback. Woo, that's awesome. But we've seen this before. We've seen the Redskins have good coaches. We've seen the Redskins have quality players. You know, here are the, some of the coaches that the Redskins have had under Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington Redskins. They've had Marty Schottenheimer, great head coach, uh, Steve Spurrier, Joe Gibbs, Mike Shanahan. Mike Shanahan, who won multiple Super Bowls with John Elway and the Denver Broncos. His son is a legend, Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan was there in the building. They had Sean McVay in the building. You could even say that Jay Gruden, the former head coach of the Redskins, was a good head coach who did... I mean, he won last year with Alex Smith. He did well. But all these good head coaches, Joe Gibbs, Mike Shanahan, Steve Spurrier, Marty Schottenheimer, they all failed and got fired by the Washington Redskins. So I ask you, why is this different? I I don't think it is. Ron Rivera is a good head coach, but he's still with the Redskins. He's still got this crappy owner. Why is this different? I have very little faith that This is going to work. I hope I'm wrong. I really, 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 I want to be wrong about the Redskins. And Redskins fans, please don't get angry at me. I'm just saying this is my opinion. I don't think it's going to work. I hope I'm wrong. I hope hope a year from now, you all look back at this video and you make fun of me and say, Zach, haha, you were wrong. I I hope I am. I hope I am wrong. I don't think I'm going to be, though. Um, Here's a bigger deal. The Redskins hired a defensive-minded head coach, Ron Rivera. I think a pretty good one. But here's a question. Who will be the Redskins' offensive coordinator? They're still interviewing. They have no idea. It's pretty clear to me that Ron Rivera has no idea who his offensive coordinator is going to be. He's interviewing some of the guys from last year, some other people. A huge concern is this young quarterback, Dwayne Haskins. He'll be in his second year next year with the Washington Redskins. Dwayne Haskins needs a good offensive coordinator to help him develop. And 
I don't think Ron Rivera has any plan for that. I don't think Ron Rivera is putting himself in a position to develop Dwayne Haskins very well. Um, that's very important. To develop your franchise quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, that's a huge deal. So the biggest thing I want you to take away, it's not about the offensive coordinator. The biggest reason why I think the Redskins are going to fail is not because of the offensive coordinator, not because of the head coach, not because of the quarterback. All the pieces are there to be successful, but they've been there before. The problem is ownership. The way the team is run from the top to bottom, Daniel Snyder's a bad owner for the Redskins. I think he's going to put roadblocks in the way of his own franchise and hurt them further. I hope I'm wrong about this. And maybe firing Bruce Allen is why I'm wrong. Maybe Bruce Allen was the problem and it wasn't Daniel Snyder. Maybe Bruce Allen being gone is going to solve all the problems for the Washington Redskins. Maybe that's true. But I don't think so. And I'm, I'm kind of shocked that given the op- job openings in the NFL, I'm, I, I'm kind of in disbelief that Ron Rivera chose the Washington Redskins to go be the coach there. I just, I don't think it's, I hope it works. I hope I'm wrong. I have very little faith though that Ron Rivera is going to be the catalyst to turn around the Washington Redskins. Hope I'm wrong. Don't think I am. I have an interesting question for you. How attractive is the Browns head coaching job? Some say the Browns head coaching job is a great opportunity for somebody. And other people say that it's a really, really terrible opportunity. You'd never want to go to the Cleveland Browns to be their head coach. And to me, I think the answer, like most things in life, it's not one extreme or the other. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle because that's usually how life works. And so on one hand, there's a report that the Patriots offensive coordinator, former Denver Broncos head coach, currently the Denver Broncos offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels, there's a report that Josh McDaniels would be eager to work with the Cleveland Browns quarterback, Baker Mayfield. And it makes sense to me. I don't think people realize when they talk about Baker Mayfield, everyone's very, very negative and pretty down on Baker Mayfield. But you got to understand, Baker has all the tools necessary to be a successful NFL quarterback. I think he's very eager. I think he wants to succeed. He wants to be a good leader. He wants to do the work. He wants it. He also is very talented. His arm strength, his ability, his accuracy is there. He just needs a coach to help mold him into the good quarterback he could become. I really, truly believe that all the tools are there. Baker just needs a good coach to guide him in the right direction. Kind of like clay. You got to mold the clay into a great pottery piece. You don't just turn clay. Without a good artist or a good sculptor, clay doesn't become a well-sculpted piece of art. It just is a pile of crappy clay. And without a good head coach, that's what you know Baker Mayfield is. It's a lot of potential. But Baker Mayfield needs a coach to form him and put him in the right direction. Now, the flip side of this, that's an optimistic point of view on the Browns' head coaching job right now. They don't have a head coach. They don't have a general manager. The flip side is this. Apparently, Baylor head coach Matt Rule has no interest in the Browns' head coaching job. He's interested in, you know, he's interviewed a lot of teams. He's interviewed with the New York Giants. Um, and uh, he refuses, apparently, to interview with the Cleveland Browns. Now, Browns fans are saying, well, he's doing that because he just wants the Giants job or he would never want to leave Baylor. And fair enough. But the reality is that Matt Rule, the Baylor head coach, the guy who took Baylor from 1-11 to 11-2 this year, Matt Rule doesn't want to work with the Browns' ownership. He doesn't trust them. Again, I go back to the answer somewhere in the middle. There are pros and cons to being the Browns head coach. You know, in one situation, you, first of all, you have to overcome the dysfunction, the, 
ownership situation in, in Cleveland. If you want to become the Browns head coach, you have to overcome the poor management and the poor ownership in Cleveland. But on the positive side, you also have to acknowledge there's a lot of talent on this roster. Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry, David Njoku, Nick Chubb. There's a lot of talent on the roster. you got a young quarterback, Baker Mayfield, who wants to succeed. And uh, it's not the best job in the world. The Browns are not. But I think some coach is going to look at the Browns' head coaching job and say, I'm willing to put up with the crappy ownership situation. The ownership has been there for a long time because there is a little bit of upside to the Browns, which is talent and an eager young quarterback who desperately, I believe, Baker Mayfield wants to succeed. And so I I totally believe the reports that Josh McDaniels would like to work with him. makes sense to me. I would too. Uh, The question is, will a head coach be willing to, will a good enough head coach be willing to overlook bad management? Matt Rule was not. And that's a gigantic hurdle the Browns are going to have to overcome is they have a bad reputation with, of having bad ownership and being impatient with head coaches. And so the top-level talent is not going to be attracted to Cleveland, guys like Matt Rule. But man, if the Browns could get a guy like Josh McDaniels, Josh McDaniels has been a head coach before. He's not the, in my head, the Browns head coach is a 65-year-old grizzled veteran guy who's been around for a long time. That's not Josh McDaniels. He's younger. Um, but he's worked with Tom Brady for years. He has been head coach before. He still has a lot of experience in the NFL, and I think valuable experience. Even failing with the Denver Broncos, that's a valuable experience he can draw off of. And so I'm curious. If the Browns do indeed you know, bring in Josh McDaniels, I say that's not awful. It could be worse. And so I'm very, very curious how things would turn out if that were indeed to happen. Okay, um... We have to address this topic. Uh, it's 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 fine. It's really it's totally fine. Um, some of my videos from over two years ago have me getting a lot of views and a lot of comments. Um, and I want to be very very clear. My takes on Lamar Jackson before the 2018 NFL Draft are not a reflection of the broadcaster I am today. I'm no longer the same broadcaster I was two years ago. Um, I leave my old crappy videos up intentionally. I leave them up because I want people to. I want people to really be able to see where I've come from. Yeah, I want I want to own my mistakes. Um, I want to own my past failures. I don't try to hide them. I think it's very important to say, look, this is what I've said in the past. Even my dumb takes, I leave them up because that's what I do. Um, and I, I want to be very clear. Two years ago, I was a very different broadcaster. I'm not the same broadcaster I am now as I was two years ago. Two years ago, I hadn't yet found my own voice, and I hadn't really found my own perspective yet. Um, when I first started, I was just trying to be like everybody else. I really was. I was copying the same narratives and copying the same topics as every other buddy, every other person on YouTube and in the sports media world. Um, and the biggest change I've made in the last two years is I started making film analysis videos and watching film for myself and I block out the rest of the media. I'm not proud of my old videos. I'm not. Um, now I am really proud of the way I covered the 2019, not the 2018, but the 2019 quarterback draft class. Those are quarterbacks. I made film analysis videos of Daniel Jones, Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins, Will Greer, Ryan Finley, uh, Tyree Tyree Jackson. Um, I do not listen to the mainstream media at all anymore. I really, I block them out. I intentionally don't want their influence on me. Um, I form my own opinions. And I watch film, and then I say what I believe from the film I watch and from the games I watch. 
And so I'm really excited for when this season ends to do a to do film analysis videos for the upcoming 2020 quarterbacks, guys like Justin Herbert and uh, gosh, Joe Burrow and Jacob Eason and Jordan Love, guys like that. I'm really excited for that. But I'm asking you for grace. Please understand that um, I try to own my past and own my failures and my mistakes. And so please understand that my my pre-draft coverage from the 2018 NFL draft class, Lamar Jackson, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, um, Baker Mayfield, my pre-draft analysis, my videos from two years ago, that's old content from when I first started broadcasting. It does not reflect on who I am today. Um, I leave it up there, though. It's very important. Uh, it's important for people to be able to see how far I've come as a broadcaster and to see how much my approach to broadcasting has improved. I'm, I'm really proud of the changes I've made and the improvements I've made. But please understand that my old videos from two years ago, I think I made a video literally saying like, Lamar Jackson should switch positions because that's what everyone was saying. And I was like, I'm going to jump on that train because that's who I used to be. That's not the broadcaster I am anymore. I say what I believe. Um, I don't listen to other people. And I just want to be very clear about that. I ask for grace. Um, you, you can judge me if you want, um, but th that's old me. <laughs> and old me is not the person I am today. And I've grown and changed as a broadcaster. And I hope you can appreciate that. And maybe I hope you can recognize that because my old videos are not a reflection of the broadcaster that I am today. Uh, I want to just real quickly, um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to talk about what you should do if you're struggling. And then I'm going to flip to an, a, a really cool segment I did with my dad the other day. So first I want to say, if you're struggling, please go get help. Uh, nearly four years ago, my younger brother took his life. It was really heartbreaking. It's one of the worst things I've ever been through. Um, my brother committed suicide and he never told anybody how much he was struggling. He never shared his struggles. I had no idea it was coming. One day I walked upstairs, found him dead on the floor. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. That is a suicide hotline. So one, if you're struggling, go talk to somebody, go reach out, go, go get help. Don't suffer in silence. But number two, uh, be clear and be careful. Tell the people in your life how much you love them, how much you care about them, that you're there for them if they're having a hard time. Uh, my biggest regret from my brother's death is that I didn't do a good enough job making it clear to him, hey man, I'm here for you. I love you. I'm there for you. You can talk to me if you want. And uh, I just did never was comfortable enough having depth, deep conversations. We talked about video games and movies and girls, but we never really had a real more in-depth conversation because I wasn't comfortable with that. So I encourage you, if you're struggling, go get help and don't be afraid to have conversations with a little bit more depth than just video games and movies. Make sure the people in your life know how much you love them and how much you care about them. All right, guys, I want to end the show this way. Uh, on Wednesday, my it was New Year's Day, my dad came over. He recorded a really cool segment with me about the Cincinnati Bengals and about Joe Burrow. It was really fun uh, for you audio-only listeners. This is the first time it's ever released, been you know reached out to audio-only feeds, and I really appreciate you. I hope you have a great day, and uh, enjoy that, guys. Enjoy that now. All right, guys, I'm now joined by my dad, Stephen Schaumler. Um, you had some opinions that I just really, really loved. And I, instead of just stealing them from you, I wanted to share them on the show and have you say them to me. I wanted to talk about Cincinnati Bengals and about Joe Burrow, the guy who they potentially could pick as the number one overall pick. I'm going to let you take it away. Talk about the Bengals. Well, first, I got to say, I'm so excited to be a guest on Strong Opinion Sports. <laughs> I've been a fan since the very beginning. Yeah. I've been a fan since before, a subscriber since before you had 10 subscribers. <laughs> it's, it's cool, man, how much you, you believed in me from the very beginning when no one else did. 
April uh, April fifth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, from that day forward, I knew I knew it would work, and you've just begun. You just watch. It's just so much fun. I'm so proud of you, and I love it. Thank okay, you. Bengals. <laughs> I like Bengals. Whatever. I don't care. I remember Sam Weish was the coach, and I kind of thought they were really cool. This is a long, long time ago, and but then we went to Cincinnati. I gotta say, a part of my frustration with the Bengals is amplified by how much I love. Love, love the city of Cincinnati. It's a beautiful, clean, incredible city with great people, great food, great beer, everything. I really love the city. And it makes me so sad they have the Bengals as their NFL franchise. Yeah, we went to Cincinnati yep. uh, in December. Uh, we saw Cincinnati play the Patriots, and you got to see Tom Brady live, and it was yeah. so much fun. And like, and you ain't kidding. The people were amazing. Dude. Every oh. person we met, eventually I felt like I was living in a Stepford world <laughs> because every person was nice and helpful you're and nice kind. You're nice, too, and you're nice, and you're nice, and you're actually not bullshitting nice. Like, you're actually nice. Uh, and and uh, we had the bars were great, and the craft beer scene was amazing, and effing Skyline Chili. How incredible <laughs> was that? I love it. I love the chili, man. I lo- I'm a fan. I, it makes I'm, I cannot believe it. It's so cool they have one on, like, every block, and it can just go anywhere and eat Skyline Chili all the time in Cincinnati. So mm. I loved it, and then I'm like, okay, Mel, let, uh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, the Bengals. And it hit me, and I became to the realization that they're just a badly run organization. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, it's painful. You're not wrong. You're absolutely right, and it stinks. Yeah, and so Mike Brown is the owner. Yep. Uh, been the owner since, what, 1991? Yeah. Um, his dad passed away, and he inherited the team. He got it from his dad. And he didn't build it. That's the, the key thing is he didn't build it. His dad did. Yeah, and it just sometimes that just sometimes it does work out, but often it doesn't. Yeah. Um, well, and I think well, here's a great example, right? If if I built strong opinion sports, which I did, and I gave it to my son, my son may not be passionate about sports, may not be passionate. He doesn't. He's not me. My son isn't me. And so you are a great. You're you're an incredibly well. I think gifted food storyteller. You talk about you're a culinary storyteller. You talk about food all the time. If I tried to copy you and do what you do with food, that wouldn't work. Because yeah. I'm not you. We have a different skill set. Right. And and I, I'm excited to give my little thought on this episode of this little segment for Strong yeah. Opinion Sports, but I could never in a million years do a sports podcast. Yeah. It just wouldn't work. No. It's just not who I am. And it just – so they're a poorly run organization, um, and there's lots of reasons behind it. Um, you know, uh, we have a podcast that we do together, the Flawed Human Podcast, yeah. yep. and someday a future segment we'll talk about hiring family, um, yeah. the dangers and perils of hiring family. But it seems like everybody on the org chart um, at the Bengals is a family member. Brown's in their last name. They gave power to people that have blood relation to them rather than necessarily because they're talented. Because they had good skill. Yeah, it's just – so it's and, – and what do you mean poorly – and I, I, I hate to say this because I love Cincinnati. I love the people there. But the organization sucks, and it's ineffective. They they just haven't – they don't have a winning record under Mike Brown. No. They have a losing record. I think, what, seven roughly out of the past 23 seasons, they've had a winning record. Yeah. Um, Occasionally, a, things go right. Yeah, they have a 414, I think, roughly, um, you know, success ratio. So less than – they've won more ga- – they've lost more games than they've won since he took over. Yeah. And I don't know why he thinks he qualifies to run it, but he's just not a good organization. And – now you're young. You're yeah. only 22. You haven't worked in for big corporations like yeah. I have. Yeah. But would you want to go work for a bad organization? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Why not? I the people that make decisions at the top matter. Um, I think a great example. I, I, there's a guy at Minnesota State St. Cloud. They I believe it's it's St. Cloud State maybe, but they they cut their football program. And the quarterback there and I, him and I have been talking, and he's heartbroken because his football program had taken away from him. And the lesson he learned is that oh. 
The people at the top in the administration making decisions, they matter. And if they don't support and they're not behind football, or if they're not even – even if they want to support football and they don't know how to, it's not going to work. And the people making decisions for the Cincinnati Bengals are not good decision makers and not people that understand football. And I can't imagine – if I went to go work for – like if I sold out Strong Opinion Sports and I went to go work for some company, I think I'd be miserable, especially if it was one that was poorly run and where we fought and I disagreed with the decisions being made above me, controlling me and my life. Yeah, and, and to my world, uh, in my head, you know, I'm not a sports guy, but to me, there's three terrible franchises in the NFL that are never going to have success until mm. the owners go away. Um, Spanos with the Chargers, until he goes away, they're not going to have success. Snyder with the team in Washington, D.C., they're not going to have success. And until Mike Brown goes away, I don't think Cincinnati's going to have success. Uh, I'm not trying to hurt anybody there, but I want to kind of preface, that's my thinking before we talk about Joe Burrow, who I love. Well, I think it's before we do go into that, I think it's also important to say it's not just that. So Mike Brown controls football operations, which he's not a he's never like who is he, the owner to make football decisions. But he also seems like a bad businessman. Like it's not like the Bengals are this. The, the Cowboys with Jerry Jones you hate Jerry Jones all you want. They have an incredible stadium. They sell a ton of merchandise. They're a brand and they're a very healthy, successful brand. They're as also well as a, football a team. well run, super profitable business. Yes, they Hate the football all you want. You got to respect that the Cowboys are well-run business, and the Bengals don't appear to be a well-run business. That's a, it. Makes it's like a double punch in the gut. They're a bad football team, and the second punch is they're a badly-run business. Yeah, back in the day when they got the new stadium, as I understand it, promises were made: get the new stadium, we'll be more profitable, we'll be more competitive. And you know, I, I think some would say that they are actually not doing as well now <laughs> as they used to be. Like the promise was: give us a stadium, we'll make more money. And we'll have more money to get better players and we'll win more and everything will be great. And I think their revenue is actually – they're actually performing less, ranked worse, farther down the, the food chain in the NFL than other teams than when they didn't have their cool stadium, which is a cool stadium. I like their stadium. Oh, their stadium's – it's on the water. It's pretty – again, I go back to – before we go into Joe Burrow, I like Cincinnati. I like the Bengals. I, 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 it's like a heartache because it's the, – it feels like the pieces are there almost – and then it's a missed opportunity where it's badly run. It's just like, oh, it's a missed opportunity that makes so my heart So close, yet so far. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> oh, man. Let's talk about Joe Burrow. The, my guess and my belief is that the Cincinnati Bengals, if they're a smart, which maybe they're not. They could screw this up. But I believe that the Cincinnati Bengals are going to pick Joe Burrow, the quarterback out of LSU, with the number one overall pick coming up in the NFL draft. It's probably everybody listening to this podcast already knows they perform poorly enough. They get the first pick this year in the NFL draft for 2020. Yeah, so the worst team in the NFL gets the first pick. So they get to pick the best player available in the NFL draft. And uh, so why, why do you love Joe Burrow so much? I think <laughs> Joe Burrow... Look, I'm a quarterback analyst. That's my job. And I talk about what makes a good quarterback. Joe Burrow has everything. He's got a great arm. He's incredibly accurate. He understands matchups. He gets preparation. He prepares really hard. A lot of people want to discredit him and say, it's the coach. But I've played quarterback. The coach doesn't throw the ball. The coach doesn't decide where the ball goes. You can give a guy a good play call and they can still screw it up. He's got better play calling this year than last year. Absolutely. But he's executed incredibly well, and his preparation is clear. The work ethic with Joe Burrow is there. He's got he got better. You told me, yeah. Uh, the 2019 football season versus 2018, in your opinion, is he worked really hard over the summer. Yeah, he got better coaching, but he listened to it and took it to heart. And he's going to keep getting better if he goes to the right place because he gets it. He works hard. And then the final thing is he understands work ethic. He understands leadership. Excuse me. He galvanizes the people around him. His teammates love him. He's fired up. He's passionate on the sideline. He understands that not only is my job to lead the team down the field. But part of that job is not just throwing the ball. It's not just putting the ball in the right spot or making decisions or this or that. Part of my job as the leader trying to move the ball down the field is leading 
and being a galvanizing quarterback that motivates and inspires the people around you. He does all of that. He's the best quarterback in the NFL draft, and he's phenomenal. And it's a heartache to me. I keep saying on my show, it's so sad that this incredibly talented, gifted quarterback who has all the tools has to go to the Cincinnati Bengals and fail. It's like, I feel it's like he's going to get handcuffed, and it's very hard. It's very disappointing to me. He's going to have to go there. Okay, that's what made me want to jump out of my skin when you said those very words, I think, at a hotel room in Cincinnati when we were there. And I'm like, time out, time out, time out, time out. He does not have to go to Cincinnati. Joe Burrow does not have to go to Cincinnati. And you looked at me like I'd lost my mind. (laughs) And you said, but the um, Bengals are going to pick him, number one. I don't care. An employer cannot make you take a job. I think the NFL wants players, and quarterbacks feel like they don't have an option, that they don't have a choice, that they don't have free will, but they do. And I get it. You know, maybe if you're in the third round and a team you're not sure sure about, if you don't have you. leverage, sure. But if you're the number one pick or you're one of the top two or three quarterbacks every year, I think even the third quarterback picked in the draft, even if it's like number seventeen, could say, "I'm not going to your team." But I saw it with my own eyeballs. Eli Manning, I already mentioned the three worst teams run, the three worst run teams in the NFL include San Diego. And Eli Manning said, I'm not going to go to your team. And San Diego, being stupid and incompetent, didn't believe him and said, well, you know, he, he wants to do what's best for him, but we're going to do what's best for our team. And they drafted him. And you know what? Eli Manning wasn't playing, fool. He did not go. And they ended up having to trade him to the Giants, which was a much better situation for him than the disaster of the Chargers would have been. Joe Burrow has the option. He doesn't have so if ESPN comes to me and says, "Hey Zach, we want you to work for me," I have the option to say no because I don't have to take the job I don't want. Correct. Joe Burrow doesn't have to work for the Cincinnati Bengals. He can say no. Trade me. I have. He has more power and leverage than people are willing to admit. Now here's we're gonna. There's a roadblock we're gonna run into. This is why. This is why I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Is that um, Joe Burrow's from Ohio? He's from this. He's from like two and a half hours out of Cincinnati. He's an Ohio kid. He talks passionately. Well, he went to high school. He went to high school in Ohio. Yes. He had success at yeah. um, Athens a, High School, mm-hmm. right? Yep. New Plains, Ohio. Two and a half hours, two hours and thirty-five minutes away, according to my phone. Yep. And all of the people that we met in Cincinnati, they were loyal to Cincinnati and they loved Ohio. And it's quite possible that Joe Burrow has that love in his heart for Ohio and that loyalty to the state of Ohio. Yeah, he might go to the Bengals simply because that's my hometown team out of duty and out of a sense of I have to go because it's the team and it's my job and my duty to go turn this franchise around. But your, your counterpoint to me, I believe, is screw that. I don't have to do that. Why shouldn't he go, even though he's from Cincinnati? I think or it's, from Ohio. It's, it's great to be loyal to your home region. I yeah. think that's phenomenal. But you should never put— it's honorable. A, a, it's honorable, and I think it's cool. I like it. I like those kind of things. Yeah. But I think it's more important and healthier to be more loyal to your own career— and the life you want than to a region or to a state or to a certain city. I think you got to have a hierarchy of values, and you and your family has to come first. Because if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't value yourself enough to take care of yourself first, no one else will. Who matters more, your kids, yourself, and your wife, or the people of Cincinnati? Or even more important, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got my mugs. I love my mugs. But this mug, what life do you want? What kind of life does Joe Burrow want as a quarterback? Because maybe he wants to be in Cincinnati and be the hero and be well-respected and be loved. If and- he wants that struggle. 
that the really hard journey of trying to make the Bengals better. Well, but he could have the joy of being the man in Cincinnati. But coming with that is the fact that the team sucks, and he can't rescue that. The team, it's a bad organization, and as good as I think Joe Burrow is, as amazing as I think he is, as amazing as you say he is, he is not going to turn that franchise around, and he could have a much more successful career at a better at an organization that is well-run. So what does he do? He says, I don't, I'm not going? Yeah, he, he has his agent. He doesn't have an agent yet at the time of this recording, but he has his agent say quietly, discreetly, I wouldn't you know, be, put a finger in anybody's face. I generally don't, don't be like disrespectful. to do that. Don't be just say, I'm not going to, if you draft me, I won't be playing for you. And of course, the Bengals are stupid, so they'll leak that, and then he'll have get maybe get some hate. But and I, harder because it'll be hate from his home state. Right, but I just don't know why. I can't see a scenario where it makes sense for him to go there. I don't um, see a scenario where it works. It does because it, it doesn't work because he's going to have a better. If he goes to well-run organization, he'll have much better success. I really, really love the coach of the Miami Dolphins. They they're five and eleven this year, but it's the best five and eleven team I've ever seen. Week two, they lost to the Patriots forty three to zero. Week seventeen last week, they beat the Patriots in New England twenty seven to twenty four, and they showed tremendous growth and progress as an organization. Oh, over but, that but year. wait a minute, wait, well, that was the last game of the season. Did the Patriots even want to win that game? Yeah, they played Tom Brady. They were fighting to the last play. The last play, they were lateraling and trying to score points. They it cost them losing to the Dolphins. Cost the Patriots a first round buy in the playoffs. They wanted to beat the Dolphins and couldn't. The Dolphins out Patriots the Patriots with good execution and well coached. And that was at Foxborough. Yeah. So some people write that uh, that loss off because oh, it was the last game people don't try as they hard. They don't understand the, the Patriots context. wanted to win that game. They were trying to even the last play. You don't play Tom Brady week 17 unless you want to win. And then I just go back to this the last play of the game, they were literally lateraling trying to keep the game alive so they could score points. They wanted to win and losing cost them a first round buy in the playoffs. My, my main point was this, though. The Miami Dolphins are an incredibly run, well-run. They haven't been for a long time, but they're getting their crap together. They're working hard. They have a great head coach that I believe in. And, man, if Joe Burrow went to the Dolphins and could be there and build something with a good head coach and in a healthier organization, that, would be, that dog would hunt. That would be awesome. And instead, if he goes to the Bengals, it's just going to be heartbreaking and painful to watch pain and struggle and losing and losing and running into roadblock after roadblock that he doesn't have to if he goes to a better organization. So two things I want to emphasize as we bring this to a close. Number one, if he goes to the Bengals, I hope I'm wrong. I would love to see Joe Burrow have success there with the Bengals Heck in Cincinnati. Yeah. That would make me so happy for all those fans, all the friends I've it's met a, recently It's an in amazing Cincinnati. story. Oh, the Ohio kid saves the franchise. The city gets a quarterback. It'd be amazing. They I win a Super Bowl. I would be so happy to be wrong. Eat my words. I'd be thrilled. I would love to be wrong, number one. Number two— he doesn't have to go. Even you said it that time, you know, in December in the hotel room. But if he gets drafted, he has to go. He doesn't. He can say no. And you think he should? I think he should. And depending on I what would. life, what life would, depending on what life he wants, I think he should, and he can. He is not trapped. He is not a victim. He has options. So Joe Burrow should say no to the Bengals, I think, and go. Say, I want to play for a better organization. If you draft me, I will not play for you. All right, guys, that's all I have. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I hope you have a great day. And uh, ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done.